You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to TFM's local books and comic show for Star Trek, and I'm just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me, back from Riza, I mean Las Vegas, Casey Pettit. Well, hello. Hey, man. <laughs> it was... <laughs> it's so hot down there. Yes, but yes. It was, it was lots of fun. Met, That's met awesome. some Star Trek folks and uh What? Yeah. Really? Uh, I know. There were yeah. Star Trek folks there? At there the were Star Trek, Star Trek folks at convention? The, at the Star Trek convention. That doesn't I mean, you make it know. I, wow. Oh yeah. goodness. Well, I'm I'm super excited for you that you got a chance to go. Uh you know, I've never been to the Star Trek convention, but having to been to celebration for Star Wars, I know how much fun it is. So yeah. and uh, you know, you I mean heck you met Ezri Dax in person. So that's pretty awesome. And, and I'm she's not jealous just as at all. Sweet as she is on the show. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I yep. Uh, I'm looking for a new co-host, everyone. Uh, so uh, anyway, but uh, we've got some great things to talk about here. Uh, we've got some fun news items because we've got some comics that have come out. We're going to review, but before we do that, and of course, as always, we're just so glad that you're listening here to Literary Tracks. And uh, if you want to help us out, uh, if you're on a specific podcatcher or app that allows you to review or rate podcasts like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, do that for us. Do that for Literary Tracks. Help us out in that way. And of course, subscribe so you get the show as soon as it drops wherever you're getting your podcasts. Uh, and of course, you could also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash TrekFM, or on Twitter at TrekFM, Instagram at TrekFM. We've got the listeners only discussion group, the Babel Conference on Facebook you can join course online at trek.fm and if you really want to help us out uh you could do that like someone like casey pettit or greg rosier who are both uh, associate producers here at literary treks through patreon and patreon allows you to be able to support the network financially because there's just no way we can do this on our own and we could definitely use your support so go over to patreon.com slash trek.fm and do see how you can be part of our team okay so, Casey, we've got two new comics that have come out. One is Mere War 8, and we're beginning to kind of get towards the end of the series, and, like, everything's hitting the fan now. And I would say, like, so much happened in this issue, which, you know, we've been complaining that that hadn't been happening, and, well, now it's all happening. Yeah. It was nice in the last issue getting some action, and it was... I, I... I feel like this series has finally found its legs. There's a story that's moving forward. A lot of stuff happens. Like you said, everything's hitting the fan. And I feel like um I feel like this is a proper mirror universe story, or like we're continuing the from the last issue, like just a really proper one. We didn't need all that build up that we had, but I feel like we're really getting into an interesting story that we've been waiting for. And it's, uh, you know, especially if you read the last issue, this one is definitely, I think worth picking up and taking a look at because I think it's, it's setting up even more, uh, to come that I think is going to be very interesting in the, in the remaining issues. Yeah. You know, I'm right there with you. Uh, I would 100% agree with you that I feel like this series completely wasted six issues. Yep. And now all of a sudden it's hit the ground running and big things are happening. And we'll, we're going to give some spoilers here for both of the comics. So just uh, if you don't want to hear them, you can skip ahead. Uh, but 
You know, here, I mean, the fact that we finally get this huge turnover on the Enterprise of Riker enacting this plan to overthrow Picard, who's become increasingly crazy. Uh, and, you know, then that working itself out to him being made emperor because he sends a bomb <laughs> to uh, with with Troy. They send a bomb to uh, the um, uh, Imperial throne room and it, you know, kills everyone. And, and then Riker, you know, votes gets voted in uh, as the new emperor by promising everybody more money. Uh, you know, I mean, there's so much happening in this issue. And I'm, I'm just so kind of surprised that, like you said, what in the world was going on in those first few issues that we we couldn't basically have just kind of almost maybe done a f- couple of setup issues and then just jumped right to this. Yeah, I feel like there was a lot of unnecessary character development, if you can call it that, in the early issues. Because yeah, like you said, <laughs> this one. How dare uh, you develop character? I mean, uh, I know. <laughs> well, was it really character development? Well, yeah, that's the question. That's, it is, and. You know, this one was a lot of fun because I, I feel like with the twists and turns that happened, um, especially with Riker killing Picard, who, yeah, has been, even for the, by mirror universe standards, has been kind of off his rocker. And, uh, you know, they're all raising an eyebrow, kind of wondering what's going on. But um, mm-hmm. it was actually kind of a nice turn of events to see. And then him getting installed as Emperor was a. Uh, almost a little out of the blue, but at the same time, it kind of, especially for this issue, really fit for kind of right. how the story is yeah. being told. You know, him taking over the Enterprise, now he's taking over the Empire. And, uh, you know, we, we got rid of that Emperor that was just in a coma the whole time that, again, yeah. was kind of another <laughs> one of those things that was like, what the heck is going on with this? But, okay. That was crazy. That was crazy. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, so, uh, to me... This issue and the the last issue, it's like okay, these are really worth reading. I mean, I would I would mm-hmm. recommend anybody who's a Star Trek fan being you know picking up these two issues and and having a good time with them because it really in in many ways the mirror universe is just about having a good time because it, it's all about kind of crazy wish fulfillment mm-hmm. in the sense that you know. This is our darkest fantasies, I guess, come to life. That's that's the mere universe, and and so I think this really fits that bill of of that. And so, yeah, I I would highly recommend that one. I it seems like you would recommend issue eight as well. I would, and I'm I'm intrigued because the last couple panels, Guinan comes back. We've seen yeah, her a couple times, yeah. and kind of wondering what she's got going on, and so. Uh, yeah, I'd recommend picking up the last issue, this issue, and I mean, the next issue remains to be seen, but if it's, you know, on par with these last couple, I'm really looking forward to seeing where the remainder yes. of these issues go. I 100% there with you. Uh, and so, uh, we have a new series that has just started. It's a limited comic series here. I think it's the uh, three-part series, which is going to be kind of filling in the gaps between Picard Season 2 and Season 3, which, of course, you know, um, talked about that here on the Artificial Tango with Chris, and we both really enjoyed uh, the Season 2 uh, entry uh, for Picard. And... Uh, this is a really interesting comic, and so I'm really fascinated here to get your take on, because we are dealing with a lot of things. Uh, one of the things that we deal with is the fact that Seven seemed to be in command of the Stargazer when we left that series, and she's not now. Uh, and not only that, but she makes the decision after taking Picard's new Kobe Machi Maru test that uh, her life needs more kineticism in it, and that leads her back to being a Fenris Ranger. And so I, I have to ask you how you feel about that. I, this makes me even more curious on how they're going to treat things in season three, because like you said, she did get a field promotion to the commander of the Stargazer at the end of season two. It felt a little out of place at the time, but at the same time, you know, the reason that she was put in command made sense. And 
that kind of made it exciting that seven was going to command a starship so in this one to see her in a starfleet uniform for one thing was really cool even if it was just within a stimulation um but her conversations with picard i feel like were very true to both characters you know picard's Mm -hmm. kind of saying this new kobayashi maru is kind of uh a new test basically like you know not all battles are fought you know in space with ships and everything sometimes they're fought around a negotiating table and she's coming to find as she's learning about who she is as a a human as a person uh that's not her (laughs) she she kind of wants to be out in the fight and Mm -hmm. i i thought it was a really fun um exploration of the character especially having her and picard together since they share history that's really you know (laughs) with the borg and everything and he's almost like a new mentor to her i don't know what to think of it yet my thought process is this though my first reaction is not great uh because seven really seemed to come into her own and put away a lot of her demons it felt like in season two and this feels like a step backwards to me for the character that she i mean she just seemed so much more confident in herself and more comfortable in herself and 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 so much uh more willing to kind of let go and more peaceful and all that. And so all of a sudden I feel like to then throw her back into this place where she's like, no, I just need more action. You know, uh, she's like, this is an Elvis song, a little less action, a little more, a little less conversation, a little more action, please. Um, I, I don't know. Do you see what I'm, does that make sense where I'm struggling with this, with the end of season two? Yeah, no, I think that does. I mean, if you're kind of looking at it as they're kind of almost unwinding her character a little bit from the development she made in season two, I guess the kind kind of the way that I'm looking at it is she was still in the Fenris Rangers at the beginning mm-hmm. of season two. And I'm not sure what the timeline, the time period was of that season, like how many days or weeks or months. Um, it didn't feel like a very long time that they were, mm-hmm. you know, their their mission to the past. Um, and if that's the case, it's a little easier for me. She's like, she went on one mission, maybe she found herself, but now she's back home and still questioning herself. At the same time, now I totally understand your point of um, she did make some leaps forward in her character, and this does kind of uh, undo that a little bit, which makes it uh makes it curious to see what they'll do in season mm-hmm. season three, especially since this was uh you know written with uh the aid or, or Kristen Beyer might have actually been one of the yeah, authors she, of this her movie. and Mike Johnson wrote this so yeah. uh and and yeah, I don't know, I guess I'm just saying i it just seems a little bit to me and I think you rightly put it this idea it's like it's like there were two steps forward and we then we took one step back. Mm-hmm. And so I just okay. I, we could continue talking about that forever, but in <laughs> in all reality, we need to wait till the next issues come out. To, I think really get an understanding uh, of of this whole situation, and that's part of reading comics. So the next thing that I guess I was also frustrated by is the fact that the relationship between Laris and Picard seems to have gone nowhere. Are you serious? Yeah, in fact, she seems like season one Laris, like beginning of season one Laris. Um, that she's just super annoyed by him, and he kind of uh, is oblivious to her, almost like her, like he doesn't even have any feelings for her. Is kind of how it feels, which is very much not how we saw things at the end of season two, and and we know that that relationship was something that he. Um, he was kind of blind to, I think, early on, but at the mm-hmm. same, like, especially at the beginning of season two, but I think b- by the end of those events, he really had a good idea of mm-hmm. what his feelings for her were. Yep. 
Um, I I seem to remember a passionate kiss with them. I, I can't remember. Yes. Or, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this feels like two people who she's still just an employee of his. Yeah. In this comic. I mean, it just feels like that whole stupid Charmin commercial. Roll it back, everybody. It's like, that's exactly what they did. It's like they put all the toys back in the toy box after season two as if it didn't even happen. And in all honesty, it makes me kind of mad. Um, and, and I'm like, okay, so I watched season two. We had all this character development, not only for somebody like Seven, but also for Picard. That was the whole point of this series. And now... We're back to like Picard yearning for space and like needing to be out there. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, and, and so I, I'm just left very frustrated. So I guess lastly, before, you know, I, again, I, I don't want to go on a whole rant because I will. Picard ends up on the Stargazer as an advisor uh, to a planet that he has previous experience with when he was on the Stargazer. Uh, that has to do with uh, the Romulans and him. And uh, so we end up uh, at the end of the comic where they come to the planet and there's nobody on it. And this planet had a huge pre-warp civilization and Seven's there at the end saying there are some... Problem Starfleet isn't equipped to solve, and we're left as the cliffhanger. Uh, okay. I mean, like, I want to love this comic because it's yeah. written by Kirsten Beyer, and I think the art is beautiful, but I am just so confused by this comic in the first place because I don't get what it's trying to do. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, first of all, yes, the art is amazing in this. Um, yeah, it's gorgeous to look at. Um, it it was fun seeing kind of the flashback, uh, scenes with Picard on, on the original Stargazer and some of the characters, um, that were developed by Michael Jan Friedman in his Stargazer novels. Um, and I, I I feel like this is one of those times where where that setup. Well, that's exactly what this comic is. It really is just the first chapter, you know, and mm-hmm. and we're just getting yeah. set up. And so, you know, when everything happens on the planet, we have no feeling for this. Like, you know, everybody's gone. The place is kind of destroyed. And with seven showing up at the end, I feel like. I almost feel like there was this kind of, um, you know, whether it was IDW or, you know, the, like Kirsten Byer herself or somebody, you know, with the show that was like, we need a Picard and seven comic. Let's figure out how to make that happen. And so her going back to the Fenris Rangers at the beginning of this mm-hmm. comment was almost just to set up her coming back to save the day later on in this comic series. So, yeah, it's it's really hard to judge, especially this one, uh, without seeing the other two. And mm-hmm. yeah, I guess it, it remains to be seen. You know, like if you're a fan of Picard, and you know you really want some continuity between the seasons, this might be worth picking up. You know, this series just for that kind of bridge. Um, since even though it's not canon, it's gonna mm-hmm. be somehow tied into the show and. Knowing how they've done it in the past, we'll probably get one little callback mm-hmm. in the first episode of Picard season three to something yeah. that happened in this series. But I don't know. It it remains to be seen. It's kind of a big question mark for me right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And it, it, I find myself in the same position. And I guess I find myself also just in the place being really frustrated because uh, to me, this comic seems like if it could be written as if season two never happened and it yes. came right after season one. And to me, that's not good writing. And no. so, uh, but 
maybe the next two will redeem that. And I really hope so because, you know, the idea of this comic is really cool to fill in the gaps there. And I think, again, the artwork is gorgeous. I love it. Um, I just, I want to believe that this story feels more connected with Picard season two. And I guess, you know, maybe that's just the problem with Picard in general is that, you know, season two of Picard felt like you could really watch it without necessarily having seen season one because it's such a kind of course correction. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I just uh, find myself frustrated. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point, though, that this does feel like it would fit just this one story by itself feels like it would fit better between seasons one and two. And I I think that there was a comic around that time, or maybe it was a... No, they had the countdown to Picard comics, but I almost wonder, mm-hmm. had they started a comic series for between one and two, but then kind of did another course correction, you know, once they started developing season two and then repurposed mm-hmm. a story for this period? I, I don't know. I guess we'll find yeah. out. Yeah, that's a great question. But, uh, you know, uh, why don't we, uh, you know, do a little bit of a challenge casey and dive into our final book of the new earth series yes okay uh as they say it looks like we made it um but we are here casey at the last book in the new earth series it's called challenger and a ton happens in this book And one of the most interesting things to me, uh, and we're going to talk all about this book in kind of like not necessarily any chronological order per se, but one of the things that happens in this book is that Kirk and Spock end up on the Enterprise by themselves in the sense that they don't have their third member of the Trinity of McCoy. And we see how that relationship plays out. And I was... I thought that the writing here was really well done to drive home just how important all three of these characters are together, especially the relationship between McCoy and Spock for Spock, um, because there's a there's a thing that McCoy does for Spock, which has allowed him to, as, as the author mentions, depressurize that. Kirk doesn't quite have that ability. And I thought Diane Carey just kind of nailed the, you know, triangle relationship of these characters and how much they need each other, but especially those two. Yeah, that's, um, that was one of the really great things about this book. And, you know, Diane Carey is one of the most prolific Star Trek authors out there from, you know, kind of the, original long run of star trek novels and she actually has written a lot in the in the original series before and i've you know i've read best destiny and i've read you know some of the other ones um and a lot i think have been covered here on literary tracks but uh it it takes a, a fairly deft hand to really look at that triumvirate of Kirk McCoy and Spock and be able to lift one of them out and have um have the relationship the remaining relationship uh portrayed like she did I mean like she took McCoy out of that situation and yeah Kirk and McCoy or sorry Kirk and Spock were a little lost at times or especially Spock uh without McCoy mm-hmm and I feel like that's not something we've ever really gotten to see on screen before. Um, because even at the end, you know, kind of Star Trek two and three Spock was more or less out of that equation for a while, but we never really got to see Kirk and McCoy interact because McCoy was going crazy through the whole third movie. Uh, you know, he was really in, in the loony bin at one point. So, um, we didn't really get to see Kirk and McCoy interact with each other without Spock as much, you know, as we really got in this book of of Kirk and Spock together. And, and the way that she described it, like you said, like the the uh, the depressurizing, or you know, just their ability to interact with each other and 
help Kirk to make the decisions he needs to and lead in the way he needs to. It it really did show that, you know, Kirk and Spock can still do good without McCoy, but McCoy really is necessary for their, for the decision tree or I don't know, you know, for, for, uh, for Kirk's leadership. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a great point about McCoy and Kirk. You know, we, we do see them interact, uh, of course, in, in Star Trek two specifically, I think of them, um, being there for one another. And, and I think McCoy is just always the character with Kirk who can say what needs to be said without a lot of sugarcoating. Um, and, uh, you know, he might bourbon coat it though. Uh, and so, uh, (laughs) which is always great or, uh, Romulan ale coated, but, uh, he, he has this ability to be able to help Spock find the equilibrium between his ultra passionate Vulcan side and human side. And again, I think the way she writes this, the, the idea of almost that, McCoy is that pressure valve for Spock, like the pressure valve we had on the quake moon. And I I thought that that was just really, really well written. And, you know, and, and, and the way in which McCoy helps Spock be able to regulate that about himself, the two halves. And which I really appreciate because when you think about who, Spock becomes especially I always go back to Star Trek 6 where he is so utterly comfortable now with who he is half human and half Vulcan really merged into being just Spock you know uh, the character who can say you know that knowledge is only the beginning of wisdom you know Uh, and so I think there's just something really spectacular about the way Carrie is able to put her finger on that and then explore that in the way in which then Kirk has to try to pick up the slack for McCoy not being there to help his friend. And I think it's also just really cool because it shows how much Kirk really does understand the people around him. He understands his friends, right? He actually understands his own role in their friendship, you know? So there's a lot of depth there without having to spend copious amounts of time on this. It's just, I think she handles it so deftly. And it it was really, really um, something that kind of touched me and, and really changed my thought process on their relationship in general, which was, I didn't, you know, you read these books and, you don't necessarily expect that, but to have her actually impact the way that I now think of their relationship as I move forward and I watch things, you know, again and read other books, I think that that she should really be praised for that. Yeah, I agree. Well, and, you know, she was one of the creators, I guess, of this New Earth series, and she co-wrote the first book with um, mm-hmm. somebody else. I can't remember who now, um, but, uh, you know, it seemed like this whole series was about kind of taking the characters, like kind of our seven main characters and splitting them off into different groups. And really this whole time, like this is really the first time that Kirk and Spock are without McCoy. McCoy's off doing something else. And I, I think that, I mean, we had those stories without Kirk, Spock and McCoy, like, at all or much, you know, and I think it was implied that they maybe were split up at that point. But, you know, we had like the, um, it was a Sulu Chekhov and I think Uhura story or something like that. And, um, and so I like, I like that this one's kind of continuing that tradition of like, Mm -hmm. okay, let's, let's take these pairings or these groups and, and just kind of jumble them up a little bit and put them in, in different groups. And so we've actually done that this time again with Uhura and McCoy uh, and really giving Uhura a chance to shine in this book, um, by really being kind of a badass with, um, yeah. especially when, when Billy Maidenshore comes back, our criminal yes. like, mastermind from the first book and, you know, finally comes back and she, you know, she and McCoy are being held captive by him, but because of Maidenshore's, uh, infatuation with uhura 
he's kind of more or less torturing McCoy and kind of showering her with, you know, comfort. And, and, you know, she even gets put in like the former captain's quarters of the ship that she's on. And she really gets a chance to save the day, but watching her and McCoy interact with each other, who I don't feel like we really ever see them paired up very much. That was really fun. Um, because it really showed that they still know each other and know e- how each mm-hmm. other works yep. to where um, they work well off of each other. Yes. And, um, you know, their personalities aren't changing just because they're with somebody else. They still are mm-hmm. who they are. But, yeah. you know, this is a situation where Uhura knew that she was uh, maybe better suited to kind of take the lead, you know, than McCoy was. Yeah, I mean, I... The whole idea of having Maiden Shore back was really interesting to me. Um, so we'll talk about him in a minute, but I think you're 100% right. I love the relationship here between Uhura and McCoy and them getting to interact. And Uhura really uh, utilizing all of her skills, realizing exactly how to play this guy. Uh, you know, realizing that if she kind of plays the dumb damsel in distress, which she is not which this whole book shows that she's clearly not. She just plays that part to get what she needs from him. And she plays him completely. And I think uh, it's really, really awesome uh, to see. And then, of course, you know, yeah, this is not McCoy's specialty, right? But the way in which they are able to interact together, they work well as a team. And and I thought that that was really well done. And and McCoy is kind of willing, especially to play along in the sense of not quite be himself uh, yeah. the way he might interact with a captor like this because he and, and too he's the one who encourages Uhura to play this up. You know he he's the one who kind of so they 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 work really really well together and they come up with this plan and Uhura enacts it and then continues the plan and it just it it it's it's a great part of the book like it really really is and then of course you mentioned the criminal element with maiden shore being back and you know i was fascinated by the way this character plays out because of course he got introduced in the first book uh but here he just seems so relevant because he's somebody who knows how to use what people want to hear against them he tickles their ears and he steals right out from under them, right? And and people, and, and, and Uhura even says something like this, the idea that people just swallow his BS and then they pay for it. And yeah. he truly is a character of our age, right? I mean, how many people do we kind of see in our world like this who we all, you can see them for the fraud they are, and yet so many people are following them um, and because they're just they're hearing what they want to hear. And this is not this is not like a political thing. And that's not what I'm getting at. I'm saying if you look across the spectrum of our world, you can see this playing out in many different spheres in every different sphere. People like this. And you're just like, how are people not seeing it? Right. Well, it's, he's somebody who has a lot of charisma. He uses it for bad. And, um, you know, even on the ship that they're on, it's a bunch of prisoners. And he is, he's good enough, you know, like so he said. he has plus 10 charisma? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah. And like you said, to the point where he, he could tell people what they want to hear where they'll just give him anything or he's at least able to take it from them. And, you know, he's the kind of person that I think he's, he's not going to get his hands dirty unless he has to, meaning like if he can get somebody else to do the dirty work, he will. And I mean, we've seen that in the first book and we're seeing that here. Um, but we also see that he's a coward um, which shouldn't be, I guess, that much of a surprise, you know, in reading it. But once Uhura 
is able to get into the computer system and, you know, help basically defeat the ship that they're currently on. And, you know, the, the temperature is just getting colder and colder and, you know, everyone's starving and she, they, they play McCoy for dead practically, you know, as, as the, um, you know, and she says she's only surviving mm-hmm. long enough to make sure he dies. And basically it's all a ruse, but she's playing his own game back at him and he's almost, I don't know how to say it, but he's kind of dumb enough to believe it, you know, because he, he doesn't know what else to do to fix the ship. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it, I mean, it's kind of a comical take on it towards the end, but it's funny because it's also true to Star Trek, the original series and, you know, kind of how, you know, Kirk would always play people against themselves, right, you know, right. especially when he's talking down the computers or the androids or whatever. And, you know, Uhura's and McCoy are almost essentially doing that here too. And, and so, you know, she basically exposes him for who he really is. And mm-hmm. even once they've got him, uh, you know, kind of under their control, you know, McCoy asked her, like, what, what are you going to do about the rest of it? And she's like, I've got a very cold knife against everyone's neck, meaning I'm not mm-hmm. going to turn the temperature back up until everyone gets in their rooms and then I'll yes. give them heat and food and everything. And um, I, I felt like the treatment of Maiden Shore in this book was so much better than in the first book because. Mm-hmm. It, yes. I, I I know that they had to introduce him at some point. I almost don't really know that they needed to just because that was, you know, book one. This is book six. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'd i almost forgotten about him. And so when he showed back up, it's like, oh, right. He's still around. He's, right. you know. And, and so it, it was fun, you know, kind of thinking back on him from the first book. But from what I remember from the first book, he was really just a foil for Kirk or you right, know, for the right. for the the wagon train to the stars and this time he felt more villainous not even like a mustache twirling villain mm-hmm. but like an actual like oh no this is somebody that could do some damage here and right. yep. you know which makes it even better that Uhura and McCoy were able to defeat him mm-hmm. no I I think you nailed it like I there's absolutely nothing I can add to what you said because that's exactly how I felt as well, uh, you know. And all in all, I would say this is a hundred percent better book than the first one as well. Yeah. Uh, this one just flowed so much better. And part of that had to do with exactly what you just said. Everything felt more organic to the story in a way that it didn't quite all line up in the first one, and so and. Here too, I mean, what's what's really interesting is that we are introducing a whole new set of characters with the USS Peleliu, uh, and they play a pivotal part in this story as much as our characters from the Enterprise. And we get introduced to a couple of really pivotal characters, which is, I would say, Crazy Captain Lake and Nick Keller, who ends up being thrust into the role of command by getting the Battlefield Commission of being made the first officer. And he has to try to figure out command, which is, you know, a couple of questions that get posed, uh, especially with conversations with Kirk, is command the beginning or the end of freedom? And he gets told by Kirk that, you know, Command is having the spine to choose between wrong and wrong. And I absolutely loved the way this played out. It was basically us, I felt like, getting an opportunity to see what it would have been like to serve under Matt Decker, mm. but actually play that out. And the the storyline here, I thought, was excellent. Yeah, I agree. It, it's funny because I read this book years and years ago. Um, and I, for some reason, I was under the impression that like Kirk and the Enterprise and they were gone. That it was fo- focused solely on this um, Peleliu ship 
that becomes challenger or something like that. Um, but, uh, having these moments, you know, we got the crazy captain who we know that, you know, as little breadcrumbs are, are dropped throughout the story, something happened in the past that's potentially driving him crazy. But at the same time, we're not totally sure because sometimes what he's doing mm-hmm. turns out to be accurate or, you know, like the right choice, you know, and it was, it was it happenstance. Did he actually know what was going on? We don't know. But yeah, like you said, this, this scene with Kirk and Keller uh, was so good. Kirk was so kind of lackadaisical in the way that he, you know, just showed up on the ship. He's wearing his cool, uh, you know, coat from Star Trek Two. You know, like the big uh, mm-hmm. Starfleet's answer to a pea coat. I think is how she described yeah. it. And uh, that that scene, or the the kind of Kirk speech, I guess, to Keller of being in command isn't always about choosing between right and wrong. Because sometimes, you know, making a wrong decision now is better than making a right decision right. five minutes from now when death is four minutes away or something to that effect. And, you know, this the the quote that you gave that having the spine to choose between wrong and wrong, I felt like was so good. It was what the character needed to hear. I felt like it's almost a good life lesson for the reader that you know if you're in a position where you have to make a decision right you know sometimes you have to choose between two wrongs and do you choose the lesser wrong or the you know whatever you don't always have the luxury of time and Mm -hmm. you know and and that's things you you learn in uh you know when you're thrust into command you know this guy went from second officer to first officer to eventually commander in the course of this Mm -hmm. book and just like some of the other story elements we were talking about it felt organic to the story it didn't feel like it it didn't feel rushed i mean the same thing happens with esri dax and the post deep space nine books when she's like the second officer and the Mm -hmm. you know she ends up being captain just because everyone dies and um this is another situation and I don't think it's an unrealistic situation. Mm-hmm. You know, he couldn't just give over command to Scotty or to whoever was around. He really had to do it. And I thought he was a really interesting character and a really good one to, um, he, he's clearly somebody who wants to make the right decisions and needed that speech from Kirk to tell him sometimes you have to make the wrong decision <laughs> and it's yeah. still going to be the best one. Yep. I 100% agree with you, and I think what they did here with the character was just so uh, interesting and well done, because I, I think what Carrie does here is, is is a great exploration of what it means to be in command, and the things that we see Kirk do all the time, right? You know, and I, I loved the way that Kirk explained it to him as well, which is to say, look... I'm not always making the decision between right and wrong. I'm I'm making the decision on, on between what's the lesser evil decision here, um, because we don't always have a clear cut right and wrong in a situation. You know, it's about how many less people will die with the decision I make, right? You know, and that's not a right and wrong decision. Uh, and so I just think the whole conversation here works out so beautifully and and then it's not just the fact that they have the conversation but it's the way in which then that is supported with the rest of the story the rest of the the choices that keller then has to make throughout the rest of the story and i thought that that was really great and you know there's some quirky uh interesting things that happen from characters from the pelu which uh I don't know necessarily completely fit into the rest of the story, but it, I don't feel like it's it's not necessary really to go into them because I don't think it takes away from the actual important story, which is being told, which is, okay, we know what it is for Kirk to be in a command. We've seen that, right? So what is it for somebody to learn what it means to be in the command that's not Kirk? And that's what we get here with Keller. And that's what I think makes this so interesting as a character study. Yeah, absolutely. And 
Yeah. Kind of taken individually, even those quirky characters. Yeah. Some of them you could potentially lift out of the story and it wouldn't be any different. I don't think any of them detract necessarily. But by the end of the book, too, they have all... Well, I was going to say they've all learned to work together, but that's not even as much as Keller has learned how to use people, uh, in- including the one, and I can't even remember her name, but she spoke in broken English and she was like an observer or something like that for her planet. Oh, to, oh yeah. Zo, um, um, so, yeah, yep, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm not sure anybody really ever liked working with her, but he finally got to the point where he knew how to command her when, when he needed her, uh, right. you know, to do the right thing, to yep. not just fight yep. or whatever. But Yep. Um, well, and, and that connected so well with what we talked about with, with Kirk and Spock and his understanding of what made his command crew so special mm-hmm. uh, is the way that they were able to work together. They had become family and that transcended a lot of the the types of of things that you would get in other commands, you know? And he realized, you know, in all honesty, how lucky he was because of that. So I I really thought that, again, she's just doing a great job here of making all of these connections between the stories. I do have to ask you a question because um, we build a new starship in 17 days. (laughs) Uh, out of a lot of disparate pieces from other starships in this starship graveyard that we have uh, on Beltaire. How did this play for you in the story? Because this, you know, all the things that we do in Star Trek, this seemed to kind of push the, uh, oh, that's not possible, button a little bit too hard. You know, yeah, that... That was actually the exact thought I was having as I read, you know, throughout that section. And it was, this is, I guess, another part where Carrie kind of, she makes me not care about that as much because it, it was still, you know, when, when Keller says to McCoy, or not to McCoy, to um, Scotty, when Keller says to Scotty, I need a new starship, you know, to help protect the planet scotty says that's great i can build it for you but you have to tell me what you want you have to tell me what it is and so keller has to again like even he's he's even getting life lessons from scotty here um and and then carrie did such a good thing with we've got all of these destroyed ships from all of the other books you know we've watched this whole fleet of ships get decimated. And so for them to build a new starship out of those old pieces, I don't have as much of a problem with that. And I suppose if anybody can do it, it's Scotty. <laughs> but yes, yes. The, the part that, that was, uh, that did have me scratching my head a little bit. And I just had to kind of say, you know what, we're getting to the end of the book. We can't make this stretch out for months, 16, 17 days. Okay, sure. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't know how long those days were, but but that was kind of the one part of the story that I was like, yeah, that seems a bit, even for Star Trek, seems a bit out there. I I think that part the the part that was the hardest for me as well, and I I agree with everything else you said though about I think why it ends up working for the story and why you don't necessarily care. Um, but I think just the hardest part of, about it was the idea that all of these ships are not like Starfleet issue, right? And so you're mixing and matching all of these different types of, of ships, even, you know, clawed and blood ships, right? Um, mm-hmm. So it's it, it, you're even mixing different aliens tech in with that. And it, it's all, that means that how all that works together is a lot harder. I mean, Scotty mentions a little bit of it when he starts talking about like the software that you have to write for all of these things to interface and whatnot. And so it, it touches a little bit on the craziness of this idea. Um, and then it's just like, eh, whatever. Um, and in many ways, I think you're right because it's more, Carrie does such a great job of making this more about the character development than really the reality of it that I'm okay with it. 
um, it is just something that's kind of funny that, you know, we build a new class of Starship, the mongrel, uh, in, uh, <laughs> 17 days, you know? Yeah. And so, and then actually, I mean, the design of it seems like it would actually be, uh, really beneficial because, you know, if you if you sat down and, and rethought it and and made it basically more with natural Starfleet tech, uh, this type of starship design had some advantages to it in the way it's able to turn and everything, especially for maneuverability and battle and that kind of stuff. Um, so that all all that stuff was great. You know, I just mm-hmm. uh, I it it would have been interesting uh, to see this again, but. Um, Another really interesting part of this story is the way in which the Blood and the Quad realize that the Federation is here to coexist. The Federation is not about domination. And that we find a way as the Federation to coexist for mutual benefit. It's like the Michael Scott axiom. It's a win-win-win. You know? And... I love that the blood had actually chosen to ally with us and then the Claude end up having a reason to ally with us as well here and realize, come to the realization that, you know, this is, this is not about one being over the other. This is about mutual benefit. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's a really Star Trek point of view. And especially to find out that the blood with Shakurion has kind of been an ally for a while now. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, happened several books ago. But Velengate, who's the Claude leader, once he kind of tells his story, it it sounds like they've been actually suffering for a while as far as, um, you know, fighting this darkness that, you know, we'll talk about in a minute, but that basically, uh, you know, when when they were attacking the Peleliu earlier in the book, um they only had a handful of people on each of their ships. Like they were in no position to be attacking, but it was kind of in their nature. And, you know, by the end of this book, they're, they're kind of at the end of their rope really, you know, and they don't, they don't have a lot of choice, but at the same time, I think they've now realistically come to the realization that, yeah, the Federation are trying to coexist and that maybe they can too. And I mean, they're ready to die. They're like, kill us or don't or whatever, but just, you know, maybe save our people. Like, you know, like we lay, we're like literally laying down at your feet um, because we just don't know what else to do. And, you know, at, at the end, you know, like Shakurion and, um, you know, Kirk and everybody are kind of like, well, no, we're not going to kill you. We're going to, you know, we can be friends. Like, let's figure everything out together. And you're right. I mean, that, that you, you don't get much more Star Trek than that. And having Velengaith come to them really of his own volition rather than capturing him and then, you know, talking at him to convince him, you know, I think was a really... It was just again as on par with the characters. It worked with the story, and um, ev- even when he came onto their ship and was like, "We surrender. We, we, you know, this is a truce. Whatever you want." There was like a little bit of like, "Oh, is is this a ruse or what's going on?" But at the same time, it felt believable, and she wrapped it up quickly. Didn't yep. didn't draw it out or anything. It was nice. Well, and that's where we finally bring all things together. And the sense that we find out that the Claude have fallen victim to that blot of darkness from Beltaire that the Rattlesnake was looking into. And that Kirk and Spock have been pursuing uh, through what they, real, what they find out is that the probes that have been attacking and pulling out the Olivium are a part of this race of beings that are called, I mean, there's a few different names they have for them, but one of them is the formless. And they're kind of partially in our universe, but not in our universe at the same time. And they kind of come up with the idea of like the submarine theory that there's always this little portion of them that's kind of like poking out uh, into our universe. And so, I mean, I, I guess like the, interdimensional beings from 
Indy 4, you know, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. That's what these people are, basically. And we learn about all this because Kirk and Spock are able to make contact with them, and their lead person to speak to us is Mitch Dugan, who's the captain of the scout ship that got destroyed, quote-unquote, from (laughs) the first book, uh, who was saved by the Formless, and they're wanting to get basically back in the game of like what it means to be kind of alive in the sense they've they've spent all of this time kind of lounging about and enjoying their four-dimensional nature and they want to get back to exploring because they've seen you know the federation coming into this part of space the blood and the clawed and and so we bring everything together, which I, I I love the way that Carrie is able to do that because that was a story thread that which we're like, is this ever going to get picked up on again? And it actually brings all of this, uh, that really all the the dangling threads from this story for the most part together. Yeah, it. The one thing that I really wish we would have gotten was just even just little seeds of this throughout the other books, like having it the first Mm -hmm. and a little bit in the second book um, and then not getting it till now. I mean, with with Mitch Dogan, when he showed up, I was like, who is this guy? And then it was like the beginning of the next chapter that he explains to Kirk who he is. I'm like, oh, right. When was that? (laughs) And. Um, but the way it, it kind of cleans everything up, um, and it's just, yes. again, it's another, uh, another species that sees the Federation, you know, they're far surpassed, you know, anything that humanity is mm-hmm. at this point. Um, uh, but they see what it could be and, and they're like, you know, we want to, we're going to get back in that game again. And, um, yep. it, just because of, of this. And I think, you're it, the it, inspiration. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but they, you know, and, and it even kind of cleans up the whole Olivium thing. You know, like there's this huge yep. priceless mineral that we found. And, you know, we're reading it kind of, you know, throughout as we've been talking about these books going, oh, maybe this is how they came up with this or that or the other thing, you know, that we see in like Star Trek The Next Generation and beyond. Um, And they don't make it completely go away but at the same time they kind of make it so that yeah we're not going to be seeing it in the quantities that we've Mm -hmm. been seeing it in these six books like they've been collecting it again and and putting it back basically into the moon to kind of that big reset button that we always need at the end of star trek episodes um but at the same time it didn't feel out of place or anything like you said that you know this is an industrial byproduct for this race yeah you know uh, and, you know, for us, it's priceless. You know, it's it's more valuable than platinum and gold and jewels, you know, because of what it can do for us technologically. So one of the things that we kind of discussed uh, yeah, uh, in, in the other books was the idea of how the Olivium might change the Federation and the technology. And Spock even talks about the, that in this book and how, you know, what this could do for the next 200 years. So mm-hmm. I think we kind of have a little bit of an answer in the sense of, I mean, even Carrie here, I think, un- giving us an understanding of why technology advances so quickly from the original series to the next generation. You know, when you think of like things like, you know, hollow projectors and all of that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, hollow decks and all of that, you know, matter replication is is much more easily accessible in the Federation and all that. You know, you wonder, did that come from research into Olivium? Because they have a bunch of it because Kirk barters with the formless to, mm-hmm. if we help you out to help stop this, you know, neutralizer that's gone rogue, this this machine that's gone rogue, that which is basically what this darkness is, um, we help you do that. We get to keep the rest of the Olivium. And they're like, okay. And and so I I loved again how a lot of things we kind of actually talked about uh, in the previous series. Carrie wraps up not in in many ways with a, a nice little bow, right? Um, but it feels earned by this point. Like we finally are getting the answers to the questions that we had all this time, and it feels good. Yeah, 
Well, and I, <laughs> I, I, I love at the end when Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are finally all reunited, and um, Spock is giving us a little glimpse of that future by kind of pushing McCoy's buttons a little bit by saying, you know, someday we might be able to to um, replace doctors, and we're gonna have programmable doctors, and you know, of course, my mind goes to the doctor on Voyager. And so, you know, and that was just a cute little scene at the end, but, um, yeah, I, I thought, um, just the way this got wrapped up, some of it happened pretty quick, but it's like, it, there was no like deus ex machina here or anything that was just like, Oh, boom, the story's over and everybody's fine. You know, like this whole book, yeah, just wrapped, um, some of those threads that have been dangling for a while that we've been, waiting for um in in a fairly satisfactory ending i'd say for this series mm-hmm. and something where i could see and i know that they do uh, one of the gateways novels was a challenger novel um it's been years since i've read that but you know at the end of this book i could see where they were trying to go by creating kind of a new original right. crew um mm-hmm. for, a, yeah. for a book series no 100 percent with you so i i got a question then as to what you would end up rating this final book of the new earth series yeah i would um give this one um well i rated it four i could really probably be convinced to give it a four and a half um it's i mean i don't know i don't really have much else to say except that you know like it 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 was a satisfactory conclusion to what was a very rough uh six books you know there were there were some mm-hmm. ups and downs and i'm just really glad it ended on an up so yeah i would uh yeah yeah i would give this four potentially four and a half stars yeah i'm right there with you man i was thinking about this and i think that i would give this 4.5 if you saw it on goodreads it would be a 4 and that's because it's it couldn't it's closer to a four than it is a five, but I still think it's more than that. And I think this is actually a really well done wrap up. And and it makes me wish that that this book was more what the original book was because the the first book in the series I didn't love. And I think Carrie just knocked this one out of the park though. And that's fantastic that that happened. I'm really thankful that that was the case because you know, we dedicated uh, part of the year to covering this. And so the fact that we actually ended uh, this well is really fun, you know, and I thought it was a great book. So I'm I'm right there with you. I'd give this a 4.5 out of 5. Well, that was uh, an interesting series to go through. Um, and I'm... I, I'm glad we're through it because I'm excited for where we're going in the future. If you're listening to this now, I think in, in the U.S. and Canada, our next book, which is uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine Warped, will be uh, 99 cents uh, for the ebook. So make sure if you haven't read that, pick it up and read it. I'm, I don't think I've ever read it, so I'm excited to get into that one. How about you, Matthew? Yeah. I love that uh, you let people know what's coming up because, yeah pick that up right now as we're recording this it is 99 cents and i think it still will be by the time this comes out so that is absolutely worth picking up and then of course make sure you get second self the new picard novel coming out from una mccormick uh, because we will be covering that as well here Uh, and so i am very excited uh we have i think a fantastic lineup coming um we have uh some we're going to kind of go back and forth between the different Star Trek series, so uh, like Deep Space Nine or The Next Generation, the original series, um, and Voyager, uh, as well as some more Deep Space Nine we have on the list. And so uh, we're, we're going to try and just go in and have some fun covering some stuff that we've never covered here, of course, on the show. Uh, but just as we're coming to you each and every month, mixing it up. Uh, as well so i'm very excited to do that but uh, casey if people wanted to catch up with you where would they find you yeah you can find me on social media at knitting trekkie i'm on goodreads letterboxd twitter instagram uh you can also find me poking around in the babel conference on facebook and you can 
Also find me on another podcast I do called Mickey's Marvels, where we discuss uh, anything and everything under the Disney umbrella. Um, and as we're recording this, D23 is coming up this weekend, and so uh, expecting a lot of news about that and looking forward to it. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be very interesting to see what they announce there. But uh, you could find me. All over social media under the name MattRushing02, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero. Uh, you can also find me here on the network. Uh, we have an entire side of the network not devoted to Star Trek, but everything else we love, and that's called the 602 Club. So I hope you will check that out. Uh, you can also find me, of course, doing The Orb with Chris Jones about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Warp 5 about Star Trek Enterprise, The Artificial Tango about Star Trek Picard, as well as Saddle Up about a Star Trek... Strange New Worlds. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, I've got a completed show with Drea Kaufman. We talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. That show is called Owl Post. And last but not least, the great John Mills and I do Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast. But thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.